The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. When Aqaba was on his deathbed, he bemoaned to his rabbi that he felt he was a failure. His rabbi moved closer and asked why, and Akiba confessed that he had not lived a life like Moses. The poor man began to cry, admitting that he feared God's judgment. At this, his rabbi leaned into his ear and whispered gently, God will not judge Akiba for not being Moses. God will judge Akiba for not being Akiba. We are born with only one obligation, to be completely who we are. Yet how much of our time is spent comparing ourselves to others, dead or alive? This is encouraged in our culture as necessary in the pursuit of success. Yet a flower in its excellence does not yearn to be a fish, and a fish in its unmanaged elegance does not long to be a tiger. But we humans find ourselves always falling into the dream of another life, or we secretly aspire to the fortune or fame of people we don't really know. When feeling badly about ourselves, we often try on other skins rather than understand and care for our own. <clears throat> Yet when we compare ourselves to others, we never see either ourselves nor those we look up to. We only experience the tension of comparing as if there is only one ounce of being to feed all our hungers. But the universe reveals its abundance most clearly when we can be who we truly are. Mysteriously, every weed and ant and wounded rabbit, every living creature has its unique anatomy of being, which, when given over to, is more than enough. Being human, though, we are often troubled and blocked by insecurity, that windedness of heart that makes us feel unworthy. And when winded and troubled, we sometimes feel compelled to puff ourselves up, for in our pain it seems to make sense that if we were larger, we would be further from our pain. If we were larger, we would be harder to miss. If we were larger, we'd have a better chance of being loved. Then, not surprisingly, others need to be made smaller so we can maintain our illusion of seeming bigger than our pain. Of course, history is the humbling story of our misbegotten inflations, and truth is the corrective story of how we return to exactly who we are. And compassion Sweet compassion is the never-ending story of how we embrace each other 
and forgive ourselves for not accepting our beautifully particular place in the fabric of all there is. Hello. Hello, howdy. Good evening, <laughs> There is an ancient Zen saying, the world is upside down. And by this, the ancients meant that our perception of ourself, of ourself in relationship to others, of ourself and the world around us, is only that, a perception, a kind of dream that the Buddha referred to. We find ourselves somewhere in the course of, course of our life falling into. We fall into the illusion or delusion of good and bad, right and wrong, perfect and imperfect. And in that dualistic perception, as the writer Mark Nepo suggests, whenever we try to make ourselves to be other than what we are, aspiring to be better, aspiring to be more, aspiring to be different, however noble or profound we may see that ideal to be or that person we may want to be, we never really see them or ourselves. Our view of ourself in the world is regularly and consistently clouded by our dualistic <coughs> opinions of how we should be, what we should be, and who we should be. And this begins early on in our life. We begin to learn that. And as I often say, our culture, which you and I must engage in regularly and daily if we are going to live in society, our culture is not conducive for honesty, it is not conducive for authenticity, it is not conducive, conducive for wholeness and humanity. And if we are ever going to begin to make any real change for ourselves and for the world, we must begin there. We must become authentic, as a friend of mine once said, about our inauthenticity. We must become authentic about our inauthenticity. Compassion is not an ideal to strive for, but rather the only ground for human beingness. Until one gives up all ideas of who you are supposed to be and start loving who you truly are, there are no possibilities for real happiness or well-being or, for that matter, the world to ever change. Think of it. Love yourself and change the world. That is where it begins and that is where it ends. Loving yourself just the way you are, imperfections and all, is not just a sentiment, but rather it is true wisdom. We are never going to achieve full self-realization, the singular purpose of any life form, until we realize the not-to-ness of life, the non-duality of creation. This also involves dropping all pretentiousness and conceptual ideas of being anything other than human. Enlightenment is not something that happens to any of, any of us. Neither is it 
grounded in any ideal to achieve or to accomplish or way of being. It is a function of a whole human being living a fully human life. The singular objective of any genuine or authentic spiritual practice is the dismantling of the bureaucracy of ego. While most contemporary teachers in both yoga and meditation, as well as the overwhelming majority of self-help books, retreats, and seminars aim to appease the ego, there is absolutely no evidence that this was the purpose or aim defined by the ancients. So we must begin, once again, by becoming authentic about our inauthenticity. We must begin by understanding, again, what we mean by spiritual practice and how to apply it, as the Buddha would say, skillfully. And so, as I say in my writing, the singular purpose of any spiritual practice is the dismantling of what I call the bureaucracy of ego. The bureaucracy of ego is that state of mind, ego being a state of mind going on, a condition immediate in the moment, going on in the individual, whenever the individual perceives himself or, her, or herself threatened by any real threat or perceived threat. And when we take a human being in our modern day culture's life and follow it from dawn to dusk, and measure the amount of times, at least in, in the West, at least here in the United States, and of course also depending on where you're living, measure it, if you will, for everybody in this room and in the state of New Jersey and in Burlington and Camden County and Philadelphia, when we take a look at their life and follow it in the course of the day, the number of times real threat rises, as opposed to the number of times perceived threat rises in that individual's life is astronomically different, they're saying, is different. So most of the time, the stress that we are feeling in the course of the day, in the course of our life, is based on a perception of threat. And when you examine, you know, Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not a life worth living. Why would he say that to us? He would say that to us, he did say that to us, and he regularly said that to his own students, students to emphasize this, again, falling into this dreamlike state that the Buddha talked about 2,000 years ago, I'm sorry, 2,500 years ago, when he began to talk about how the mind is operating. So thousands of years later, Zen says, if there is no clear understanding of how mind operates from moment to moment, suffering compounds. So in an effort to dismantle the bureaucracy of ego, which generates the stress, the self-doubt, and the perceived fear in the course of our day, in order to dismantle that, we need to again be honest about what is going on. So when we take a look at the question, what are our perfections? We need to also ask, what are our imperfections? So what is ego up to with this perfection and imperfection? With this 
dualistic view of oneself and others. Good, bad, right, wrong, valuable, invaluable, lovable, not lovable, beautiful, not beautiful, and so forth. Our perfections, just as our imperfections, are nothing more than comparisons based on agreements we make in the course of our life between ourself and our culture. Let me say that again. Our perceived perfections and imperfections are nothing more than agreements we consciously or unconsciously make between ourselves and our culture. And that agreement literally determines for us not only how we will feel about ourselves, how we will feel about the day, how we will feel about others, but literally determines or predetermines for us what we are permitted to feel. What we are permitted to feel. And when Buddhists talk about detachment or the practice of detaching, the detachment involves the detaching from those ideals that prevent us, literally prevent us, from seeing who we truly are. If it were enough to say to you that the course you must take in the days ahead is to be who you truly are, I would just say that to you and go back home. But obviously it is not enough. And here's the reason why. Early on in our childhood, and I will read something that uh, someone gave me many, many years ago that literally was a turning point in my own understanding of what we're talking about tonight. But early on in our childhood, <clears throat> we begin to be conditioned toward these ideals. We are conditioned, we are trained, we are directed toward these ideals and toward this dualistic approach to life. The first thing to learn on the road to one's own true self. So immediately, Buddhism says there is a dismantling of the bureaucracy of ego that is required, and the dismantling eventually leads to the awakening or the realization of who one truly is. So when I tell you you need to be who you truly are, you need to be careful with who you think that is. You see? It's not like, okay, I'm going to say F you to everybody who doesn't accept me and just love myself unconditionally. Because quite frankly... For most people, that who they have come to believe they truly are, I wouldn't want to live with them, you're saying. And that's why they don't, you're saying, and so forth. So this who I truly am, we are born with the knowledge of, we identify with it in infancy and throughout most of our childhood up until a certain age when someone or some event or something scares it out of us, if you will. Literally scares it out of us. And it is at that moment, as you will hear me read on, it is at that moment our life no longer be, is natural. Our living is no longer natural. Our living is now mechanical. And its singular objective, which is the singular objective of ego, the ego's singular objective is the survival of that being, of who that person is. 
And ego determines that from whether or not it perceives a circumstance, situation, a conversation, another person as a threat or not. And that is based on whether or not, well, let me tell you it this way. Our friends are those who agree with us. Our enemies are those who don't. I'm saying. And that is how ego is operating from moment to moment. Our likes are based again on that very <coughs> egocentric idea that we have been conditioned towards and our dislikes the same. One's liberation from fear is what we are talking about. In the beginning, the first lesson is that one is not who one thinks one is. Each person, without exception, has a fictitious past. Each of us is precisely an imposter, an actor on a stage. I think it was George Bernard Shaw, correct me if I'm wrong, who said that uh, most of us live lives of imposters in an effort, again, to become someone, to become someone. And that's like the dog chasing its tail. And setting off in search of true identity, one steps into a labyrinth, a maze, a tunnel of love, a hall of mirrors, a derelict graveyard, a long-neglected archaeological site. Whatever metaphor one uses, part of the task is to uncover and to confront one's accumulated mass, distorted images, and multiple false identities at cross-purposes. One must peel away not only the masks one knows so well, those that one thinks one is wearing now, but a host of other masks, those thought of and those never even considered, never imagined, that one wears in the course of one's lifetime. Most of the masks we wear have been there longer than we can even remember. We became imposters in childhood, and we continue to wear them throughout our lives. We will wear them to our graves. Among the obstacles lying in the way of knowing who we really are, preventing us from exposing our false identities and uncovering our true identity, preventing us from experiencing real aliveness, vitality, and joy, is a sentimental and romantic notion about the past, in particular, our childhood, that time when the most intractable, the most unyielding of all false identifications, identifications with our parents, were laid down in our psyches. So it begins early on and starts at home. It begins early on and starts at home the moment we consciously or unconsciously shift. That is to say, the context or the defined purpose for which you and I are born with, for which you and I are aware of early on in our life, and that is to live our life genuine and authentically all the time, to be who we truly are. A literal shift took place for all of us. It takes place for each and every one of us. The moment we become convinced that the survival of the being requires anyone else's acceptance or approval. And we begin to collect 
if you will, a dictionary of perfections and imperfections, just like the dictionary defined for us. Defined for us. So when we live our life constantly, you know, battering ourselves when we see ourselves as imperfect or doing something wrong, or even blowing, you know, as Mark Nepo said, inflating ourselves up when we think we have done something so perfectly right. We need to understand what's going on there. And what is going on there, again, is what we call the bureaucracy of ego. Compassion, sweet compassion, is the tool we use to dismantle all of that. And it begins with a willingness on the part of the individual to literally detach from every ideal. Remember what the rabbi said to Akiba. God will not punish Akiba for not being Moses, for not being Christ, for not being Buddha-like. God will punish Akiba for not being Akiba. Because the singular purpose of every one of the myriad forms, forms of creation that exists is to be exactly and no other than yourself, than who you truly are. And you've heard me, if you've been with me in the past long enough, at least touch upon this once, even though I'm confident that March, which will be 39 years for me, I've been talking about this, I've touched upon it at least 39,000 times. And that is... The purpose of your life is to live your life. The meaning of life is to live your life in, at the level of excellence and, at the benefit, and for the benefit of others. That, it, that purpose and that meaning is universal. When we take a look at nature, again as Mark Nepo suggests in his writings, when we take a look at nature, everything in the forest, everything in the forest, and maybe that's why we're so attracted to nature, and that's where we tend to find ourselves when we want to feel some peace of mind. Maybe that's why so many of us feel at home when we're at the ocean, or when we're in the forest, or on the mountain, or doing something, or interacting with nature. Because we are home. We are in an environment, if you will, that doesn't care how much money we have, doesn't care how much success and failures we have in life, doesn't care uh, who we want to be or who we don't want to be. It is unconditional. It is an unconditional context, which, again, we knew as children early on. So the first thing we need to do is we need to be honest about our definition of what makes me a perfect or a good person or a better person or a happy person or a loving person and all of that. And what doesn't. And again, as I said a moment ago, all of our ideals, whatever they may be, all of our ideals are nothing more than adopted agreements we made early on in life and continue to make throughout our lifetime agreements with some idea or definition defined for us. Defined for us. And much of our stress in life is not about what we think it is. 
if not all of our stress in life, is not about what we think it is. We tend to think that the stress we experience in the course of the day is a function of the circumstances and situation that risen in the course of our day. No. No, not at all. Stress is a function of, again, living an unauthentic life as if it were real. As if it were real. It is a function of what Shakespeare referred to when he said, of all things to thine own self be true. It is a function of what Socrates meant when he said, the unexamined life is not a life worth living. Because we need, as they say in the East, not the right answer for our life, we need the right question. And the right question, at least for the, uh, tonight's conversation, is who the hell am I? Let's see. And who is this perfect person I strive so much to be in the course of the day, and why? What's that about? Why is it so important to me? You know, it's kind of like what I say to my students and friends regularly. You live your whole life striving to become, and then you die. How's that working for you? You see? And then you die. And whether or not you have achieved that, you will die. You see, whether or not you have achieved that ideal or that goal, you will die. You know, as I often explain it, if we line up all of the perfect people on the left side of this room and all of the perfect, imperfect people on the right side of this room, what they all have in common is they are all going to die. And the angel of death doesn't care. Doesn't care. And I often say, when he comes for me, I'm going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am a Zen master. I have achieved enlightenment. I have, I have done so much for thousands of people. And you know what his reply will be? Get in the trunk. I have thousands of you in there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to death. If it doesn't matter to death, the Tibetans say it should not matter to life. Good death, good life. Good life, good death. So who am I? And what is all of this striving for perfection about? And how do I turn that around? How do I make that shift? A moment ago, I told you that at a very young age, consciously or unconsciously, we all have this contextual shift. The ground of our being shifts on us, if you will. And usually it's in the moment when we, again, as a child, consciously or unconsciously, redefine the purpose of my life, the meaning of my life. And it goes from, as you can see, for example, in my four-year-old daughter, she fortunately is still at the place where she believes that the purpose of her life is to be who she truly is and to live that as much as possible in the course of the day before she goes to sleep. Let's see. And if you know anything about four-year-old children, sleep, nap, is bad words. Okay. <laughs> They don't like it. And the reason why they don't like it is because something inside them tells them they might miss out on an opportunity to be more and more and more of who they are. Unfortunately, and I pray every night that I'm not the one, someone or something will cause in her life what happened in my life and in your life. That definition will shift, and it will then become 
the purpose of my life and the meaning of my life is defined in this way, how much I am approved of, accepted, and loved by others. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at how you have been spending your life and how much that matters to you, you see. Why do we become the people we become in our lifetime? Why do we choose going to college or not going to college? Why do we choose going to a job and having a career or just flipping burgers at McDonald's before the Republicans messed it all up? <laughs> Why did we choose that, if you will? What is that really about for us? And when you start to examine one's life, as Socrates suggested, and as the Buddha was emphatic about, the Buddha was emphatic about this, when there is no clear understanding of how the mind operates from moment to moment, suffering compounds. Suffering compounds. So any authentic spiritual practice is that self-examined life that Socrates pointed to. It involves a willingness on my part to mindfully, and this is really what mindfulness practice is about. It's not that, again, you know, mystical, magical thing that makes us feel, bad, feel good all the time. Mindfulness practice is truly being mindful of my choices and decisions I make in the course of the day. And asking that question of, again, what is that about for me? What is that about for me? In Zen training, mindfulness is used, again, to understand our habitual behavior that begins again in that conditioned period in our childhood. And examining that behavior in such a way and asking the question, as the Buddha prescribed, whether or not that works or doesn't work. It begins with an awareness of my thoughts. You know, the thoughts that often are just constantly randomly running, that is all part of that conditioning also. Compassion is the practice of giving up. And when we talk about giving up, the word for giving up, as we are talking about it tonight, is forgiveness. Compassion is the practice of forgiving ourselves unconditionally. Unconditionally. <clears throat> forgiving means to give up as in expectation of, resentment of, judgment of, criticism of. You see? So in, the Zen, in a Zen monastery, when you come to train there, you're given... A, what we call a, a, a manual for etiquette, a manual for behavior in the monastery. And the behavior, that structure is designed not to make you a Zen Buddhist, not to make you a Zen person. It is, you know, people ask me, what, who will I be after enlightenment? And I, was, and I often say to them, for the second time in your life, you will be you. You will be you. So part of that etiquette is the instruction. Say yes when you mean yes, and no when you mean no, and everything else is dangerous. Everything else is a lie. So we be, compassion is the activity of stepping out of 
that bureaucracy of ego that is constantly measuring myself moment to moment, qualifying, testing, judging, and criticizing. So one of the exercises I often give everyone, including my students, is that every single time a thought of criticism or judgment comes up for you, either for yourself or another, stop, take a deep breath, and simply remind yourself, just another lie. Just another lie. Because again, when you understand what I said earlier, all ideals, all of them without exception, are nothing more than agreements we make with whoever uh, defined that particular ideal for us. We make that agreement. We say yes. That is why this wor these words, I am, are talked a great deal in all of the wisdom traditions as well as religious traditions. They're powerful words because when you say I am and whatever follows long enough, you is. You is. That's how it works. So when the Buddha again set up his prescription for transforming all of this, changing all of this around, he talked about right thought, right speech, right action. And what he meant by the word right is thoughts, words, and actions that liberate us, free us up, rather than imprison us and keep us stuck in unreasonable, unacceptable expectations, both for ourselves and for others. Any questions? So do you have the courage to detach? Do you have the courage to forgive yourself here on for the rest of your life? Now you have to remember this. In order for you to truly forgive yourself and detach, you must forgive everyone else and detach from your expectations of them as well. Because you determine your expectations of others exactly according to your expectation of yourself. We see the world out here according to our perception of ourselves. Whatever way I perceive myself. So what am I going to do with you when I perceive myself as not so valuable not so attractive, not so lovable, and so forth. How do I survive that in the world? How do I, how do I get through life with that perception? Bueller? Hmm. <laughs> Anyone? Change yourself to match that. No. Compassion. No. The question is, how does one survive the perception that I have little or no value? How do we do that? How do we survive that? Any authentic spiritual practice has nothing to do with survival. Forget survival. 
So we're not talking about how does, what spiritual application do we bring to the practice. We're talking about how do most people get through the day when they perceive themselves in relationship to other people that way. How do they survive that? Community. Or if you may speak, mm. detaching from it. No. That's not how you do it. How you do it is by how we do it, how I do it, how all of us do it, is by making others wrong. So I often tell this story about, when I was talking about this in a seminar about 20-some years ago at a Catholic retreat house that I was a director of for about two years. So I gave this seminar and I got to this point of the seminar where I was talking about uh, two types of relationships. The first type of relationship is a working relationship. A working relationship is one where you come to me and you say to me, this is what I need to be happy. And I say to you, this is what I need to be happy. And we, birth, we both work to help each other achieve that. That's a working relationship. Then there is a powerful relationship. And a powerful relationship is defined by my willingness to stop making my partner wrong. So there was this very cute elderly couple sitting in the back who had been married forever. And the husband raised his hand. And, he's, and I acknowledged it, and he said, um, Roshi, I, I hear what you're saying. I really hear what you're saying. There's only one thing you're not seeing. I don't make her wrong. She is wrong. <laughs> you know what I'm and that is how it is for most people. We bring that perception in order to survive whatever is going on. So the way I puff myself up, the way I survive the notion that I have nothing to offer is that I look for someone to make less than me. So when I am truly loving myself for who I really am, what will I do with you? See how difficult it is? Accept you. I will love you for who you truly are. When I truly detach from and forgive myself, which is, again, give up all of that judging and criticizing myself, I will stop doing that with you. Because I have no need for doing that. I have no need for doing that. That is why love yourself and change the world. That's how that works. The only reason why I will make you wrong is that I perceive you as somehow a threat to my rightness. You see? A threat to my okayness. Or another way of saying this is that I can't give you what I don't have. So when you expect me to love you, if I don't love me, it ain't going to work. I can only give you what I have. So loving myself means I have something to give to you. means I, I will love you. I will love you. But if I don't love me, if I don't even like me, if I'm constantly living my life trying to, again, impress others and get other people's approvals and acceptance, what does that say about how I feel about myself? Why? You know? Why? Why? What's that about for me? And when I give that all up, I don't expect you to look for that with me either. I will love you unconditionally. I will love you in the same way I love myself. That's why that rabbi said what he said. 
love your neighbor as yourself. I think he said, you will love your neighbor as yourself. We love others according to the way we love ourselves. Period. End of discussion. We love others according to the way we love ourselves. That's why contrived love, I think it was a, uh, I forget, it was a Spanish philosopher who wrote that the two greatest contributions of the 20th century was gunpowder and romantic love. Okay? So that's why romantic love is so difficult. I'm saying. Because a lot of that is contrived. A lot of that is acting out Hollywood. You know, the notion of happily ever after and all of that. The only kind of love that works both for me and you is one that is authentic. And that authenticity only begins when I begin to love myself unconditionally. What does that mean? I will be perfect when I am being who I truly am. Period. That's the only thing I can perfect. You can't be me, therefore, I don't look for that in you, because you can't. You can't be me. I can be me, and you can't be me. So the one thing that I am perfect at doing is being me. Everything else I will be imperfect at doing, and will need your help. <laughs> you see? And when I acknowledge that, that's what we mean by humility. That's the, that's the true meaning of humility. Humility is, I am really good at being who I truly am. Everything else, I may need your help with that. And that is why we talk about community and relationship as an integral part of a human being's life, an essential part of a human being's life. We need each other. But I don't need you to be me. And you don't need me to be you. You got that perfect. You were born with that. You're hardwired for that. And when I'm not being me, all those times when we feel uncomfortable with each other in our relationship, what's really going on there is somewhere, one of us or both of us are not permitting each other to be who they truly are. That's the only time. you take. You, when my four-year-old wakes up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, this is how she gets up. <laughs> <laughs> And the rest of the day, okay? If I try to stop that motion before bedtime at night, she yells. She cries. She doesn't want to be anything else but being who she truly is. And then at night, she hits the bed and boom, out, like a rock. Six o'clock the next day, see? Because for her, being is everything. Being, and if you have ever observed three, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-olds, you give them a stick, they'll create a whole world. They don't need anything in particular to be happy, except the space to be who they are. The space to be who they are. And that's the way you were. That's the way we all were at one time until we decided and redefined for us that happiness had to do with achieving this or that particular ideal for ourselves, And every time we failed at that, we were unhappy. Unhappy. 
my daughter does not care whether she reaches <laughs> any ideal that I set down. She doesn't care. She only cares about being who she is. It's all that matters to her. So our working relationship works like this. When I let her be who she truly is, I get some rest. <laughs> That's how it works. I say, and if you're a parent, you know what I mean. The first thing to learn on the road to one's own true self is that one is constantly and has worn hundreds if not thousands of masks in one's lifetime. Shakespeare said, a man's life is that of an actor on a stage who for a brief moment takes center stage. And in that moment, all that he performs is filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing. Signifying nothing. The only t real thing we have to offer others that makes a difference in life is our self, is our true self. So again, any authentic spiritual practice is where the teacher or the master or the prophet or the messiah or the Buddha comes along and stops us in our path and asks us to do what Socrates mentioned, examine this life I am living. How much of this life am I am living truly allows for me to be who I truly am from moment to moment? Now, one of the things that you come up with, which is a powerful teacher, one of the things that you confront once you enter into this practice, which is a powerful teacher, if you don't believe me, look at this question for yourself, and you need to look at it, and you need to hear what I'm asking you. When I suggest to you that you have at any moment the freedom to be who you truly are, what do you do? I've been dealing with this for 39 years. What do you do? I say to you, you have the freedom to be who you truly are 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at any moment. What do you do? Yeah, you'll argue with me to the death. I can't be who I truly am. And I will ask you why. And what will you come up with? What is the general reason why you can't be who you truly are? The one you come up with in the conversation. Somewhere what you return in that, in that dialogue is she won't let me, he won't let me, society won't let me, this one won't let me, that one won't let you. How do they not let you? Question, hmm. uh, Judgment? Like, oh, she'll think I'm weird, so I can't be who I truly am. All right, well, that's, what they, that's their behavior. But how is that not letting you be who you are? You're not letting yourself be who exactly. you are. Exactly. Exactly. Any spiritual practice whose aim or is liberation of the being, freedom of the being, which is the singular purpose of any genuine spiritual practice, 
no matter who the founder was, any spiritual practice becomes functional, viable, and achievable the, the moment we choose to be responsible for the results and not before then. And I think that that's why Zen is so difficult for so many people. Because in Zen, you come to the monastery, we give you the tools, we tell you how to use them, and the rest is up to you. The first thing you hear me say on that first day you and I meet, there is no magic here, and I am not a magician. The rest is up to you. Because on the day of your liberation, you will realize that you have lived a life as both the jailed and the jailer. The jailed and the jailer. So unless they've taken you, put you in a cell, and locked you up and gagged you, the only one not letting you is you. The only one not letting you is you. And when you ask the question, why other people... My father told me this story when he was, uh, uh, got his first job. He came out of the coal mines of Pennsylvania, and he came to Philadelphia, and he worked uh, for Mr. Greenberg. And he gave him a job to do, and my father went and did the job. And when the job was all over, Mr. Greenberg said to him, so how much do you want for your service? And he replied to Mr. Greenberg, um, whatever you want to pay me. And he took my father, he was 16 years old, took him and sat him down, and he said, I want you to listen to me. He said, I want you to learn this lesson. If you're going to make it in business anywhere, you need to learn this lesson. If you're going to make it in life, you need to learn this lesson. So I want you to listen to me. And he tells me today, he's 85 years old, and tells me this was the most important lesson anyone ever taught him. And here it was. Mr. Greenberg sat him down and he said to him, Clarence, if you don't value what you do, I won't. If you don't value what you bring to life, I won't. And he said he never forgot that lesson. And from that day forward, the next person who asked him how much, he had an answer. He had an answer. So, again, most of our stress in life is nothing, is a function of actually perceived threats, not real ones. Not real ones. We perceive someone else's lack of approval or misapproval of, of us as some kind of threat to who we are. No, it's a threat to who we think we should be. And you need to know the difference. You need to know what is really being threatened there. What is really being threatened when someone does not approve of us or judges us or criticizes is the person we think we should be, not who we truly are. Remember, I said to you a few moments ago, I am perfect at being who I truly am. No one else can be who I am. So if no one else can be who I am, and I can't be who you are, where does all of the uh, evaluation begin and stop? For me. Where does it begin and stop? Where does it start and end? Right here. 
You can't determine whether I'm being perfectly me or not. I can. I know what it is. And maybe that's a problem for most of us because most of us don't know what that's like. But I think you do. And you just didn't know what was going on. Anyone tell me, uh, give me a word to describe how, uh, what, when you are truly being who you are, what is, what is present in your experience for you? What is going on? Um, peace to, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just being, you know? Yeah. When I am being who I am, like right now, this is who I really am. And, you know, those who have known me long enough, the monks will tell you, I've gotten up with 104 degree fevers and sweats and an abscess tooth and done this work with energy and vitality. Sports guys and, and women call this being in the zone. Being in the zone is being who you are. Okay? And they'll tell you when they're in the zone what's going on for them. Everything is just flowing. And I know you've had that experience at least once in your life. That's how you know that you are being authentic in that moment, that you are bringing your true identity to the moment. It just flows naturally. There is this sense of capability. Some of you heard me talk about this in the past when Katie goes to bed tonight before she falls asleep. I have given her, since she was able to talk, four mantras to recite. So I, I'll be with her and I'll say, okay, the four mantras, and she'll say, I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And we never really talked about the meaning of the, those mantras. And one day she's doing something and she did it and she yelled, look daddy, I'm capable. And I said, yep, and don't you forget it. And don't you ever let any man tell you different. <laughs> and if they do, send them to me. <laughs> We also agreed no sex until I die, <laughs> and no boyfriends until she's 25. Then she won't be herself. <laughs> <laughs> we all do it. <laughs> so when I'm being who I truly am, there is this sense of flow going on. There is the experience of capability. There is this experience of, you know, again, flow. Sometimes we get that when we have accomplished something in the course of the day that, you know, we were really working on and we've achieved it. And we get that sense of satisfaction. You know, we get that sense of aliveness. So the way I know that I am being authentic is there's this sense of flow. There's no stuckness or, or a sense of, you know, being careful, having to be careful with what I say and what I do, and all of that. Any questions? Hi. I, I find it interesting, uh, not knowing uh, the subject of your presentation this evening, I had in mind to ask for a question that you have touched so well on and given many answers. The question is, <coughs> how do many of us so many of us allow ourselves to be disingenuous and dishonest amongst each other today. 
The very thing that runs and generates the stress in our life is how that happens. I am convinced that somewhere in the course of my life when it happened for me, someone or some circumstance or event convinced me that I was not good enough. At that moment, at that moment, I became convinced that the purpose of my life was to become whatever that is. <coughs> now, at that moment, I also need to go find out what that is. And when I have to go find out what that is, someone else defines that for me. And at that moment, all freedom is shut down. You see? My daughter knows what that is. She knows the answer to that question. Four-year-olds know, three-year-olds know, two-year-olds know, five-year-olds know, six-year-olds know. And then an adult comes around and messes them up. Tells them, grow up. You know, or whatever it is. You know, we all say it differently to our children. You know, our culture says it, pro, you know, prof, says it um, in many ways to our children. You know, imagine how long it's going to take to repair this in the lives of inner city children who have been told every time they wake up in the morning without any meal, when they go to school, no meals there, and all the other stuff that's going on, they're not as important as the kids up the street that get hot meals. So there's something on Facebook today some of you replied to because I shared it with you. It's, uh, it went something like this. It's easier to uplift a, a person's life than, as a child, to uplift a child, than it is to repair an adult. Saying. So it all begins early in our lives. And this is not Buddhism. I mean, you know, medical science will tell you that. There's that period of conditioning from the moment of birth, some say four, some say six, where the most impacted conditions happen in our life. And depending on whatever those lessons are, literally determines for us not only the direction we will go in and the choices we will likely make, but what we are permitted to. So the way I often talk about this in matters of love is that somewhere in our life we defined love this way or that way. And when you start to understand mind, as, the, as Buddhists talk about it, in, <coughs> in understanding how the mind is operating, one of the most profound lessons is that mind it sees only what it's looking for. It sees only what it's looking for. So when you entered the room tonight, you know, it's like I, I tell my students, it, it does, it, I take very little interest in whether you liked it or not liked it. Because what I, and that has nothing to do with being, you know, sarcastic or anything. It has to do with understanding how the mind is operating. Each of us in every moment are bringing to every moment a prescribed agenda. We're looking for something. When the person or persons deliver that, we usually leave and say, that was a great talk tonight. <laughs> okay? when, that, when that doesn't happen for them, they're usually like, it was all right. It was okay. It was all right. You see? And that's how we do it in every, everything in life. So in matters of love, literally, 
mind, I say to people, I say that, you know, people in the relationship seminars, and we have one coming up on March 22nd, I say in the relationship seminars, the right person for you walked in front of you at least 400 times today, and your definition of the right person would not permit you to see that, would not permit you to see that. So whatever my definitions are, when you take a look at Webster's definition for the word to de, for the word definition or to define, it says, you can read this, go home and check it out tonight. It says this, whenever we define anything, we literally fix the limits of it. To define means to fix the limits of it. So when the mind is defining this, that, this, that, good, bad, right, wrong, acceptable, unacceptable, lovable, not lovable, beautiful, not beautiful, I'm really impressed and grateful that on the internet uh, today uh, there, are, uh, there was a report from Huffington Post of the number and number and number of magazine companies that are choosing because of, again, the women's movement to change this in the world, to give up uh, portraying women. Uh, the way they're saying it is we're giving up Photoshop and models. So that when you see the women in our magazines, you're seeing the real person, you're saying. And it all came out of an article that came out not too long ago about how when you, when you see these women in these magazines, they've either been fixed up by Photoshop or they're models who live extraordinary lives to which we could never achieve, you know, that type of body, even if we wanted to, you know, say. So, again, the mind, once it defines what's beautiful, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's doing that with everything else. So whatever definition I have of a good person, that's the person I go looking for. And when I don't find that person, I'm not going to be comfortable with the person I am with. And when I'm not comfortable with the person I am with, I literally fix any possibilities. The Japanese say, when we finally are no longer sure, all possibilities arise. All possibilities arise. So in Zen, which is the opposite of, again, most people's contemporary understanding of spirituality, the aim is not to be sure, not to know, but to accept not knowing. When I go through life not knowing, it's kind of like every Tuesday night when I do the meditation training here, I usually say good night to everyone, see you all next week, and then I say, maybe. That's the truth. And then Rhonda left and I said, I'll see you Tuesday, Roshi. I said, maybe. I have no clue. I might walk out tonight and one of you run me over with your car because I was lousy. Who knows? <laughs> See? Like that. But all possibilities become available to us when we give up our expectations of ourselves and others. Now, the playing field is not only even, but open. But open. You see? So to forgive myself, again, the definition of the word forgive is to give up. So to forgive myself, one might start now as an adult right here and forgive myself. What would that look like? To forgive myself is to forgive me for expecting me to be anything other than who I truly am.
to stop pretending. Yeah. Yeah. All pretentiousness must drop. All of it. Okay? And, and again, I want you to hear this the way I mean it. To hell with who doesn't accept you. And if you don't feel that way, guess what? You get to go to hell. Because that's what hell is. Hell is spending one's life striving to achieve all the expectations of everyone else but yourself. Hi. Roshi, what if you have serious character flaws? I'm sure everyone in the room probably has at least one. Be it uh, anger management, uh, selfishness. How do you just erase that and forgive yourself and forgive others if you yourself haven't done the work Mm -hmm. to... Well, that's, you've just, you've answered your own question, okay? This is not something, and I said this earlier, this is not about taking on the attitude, to hell with everybody else, I'm going to just say what I want and do what I want. That's not what this is about. This is about doing the work. It's about doing the work. The character flaw came out of the ignorance of who I truly am. It's a function of that ignorance. My character, nobody's born angry okay nobody's born resentful nobody's born uh, hateful we learn that so the work is to unlearn that so like again when you enter into formal training at the monastery you hear me say to you you've come here to relearn everything you've learned about how to live your life today you see because if that was working you wouldn't be here you see so yes, it's not a matter of, it's not denial, okay? It's, as I've been saying all night, honesty. If I have a character flaw, if you, you know, that's the clinical word for it. If there's something about me that is hurtful either to myself or others, I need to work on that. So yes, it begins with this, this unconditional acceptance is the acceptance of my character flaws as well as everything else. This is my stuff. This is my practice. This is my work. So in Zen, there's no separation between me and my actions. So if in my actions I am hurtful to myself or others, that's the lesson at hand. And I need to learn that lesson before I can go on to the next lesson. So if I have a character flaw where I'm, co- where I'm so easily angry at everyone, there's no freedom po- possible there until I clear that up. And once I clear that up, again, if you heard what I said a moment ago, that f- character, if you will, is something I learned, took on, became. And whenever we talk about, you know, uh, therapy working or, or spirituality working, that is changing for us. And what's changing is we're detaching from that behavior. So in anger management, how do, they, how, do they, how, do, how do they train you in anger management? They train you how to, they train you how to respond or react to the sensation of anger differently, rather than just striking out. And that's what spiritual training is about. Earlier I talked about the, etiquette, the practice manual, the etiquette manual you get when you come to the monastery, is about reshaping habitual behaviors that are harmful to yourself and others. You see? So yes, we're on the same page. You've got to do the work. 
You can't just make this happen like that. You've got to do the work. That's why I said earlier, be very careful if you think you know who you are right now. Because for years and years and years, we have lived imposters. Uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, before he died, was interviewed by uh, a newsman. And he was asked, he was asked what he would identify as, you know, what made him able to be the great actor he was, what empowered him. And he said, while I was acting a role, and, I, and I'll, show you how, I'll show you something else about this in a moment. While I was acting that role, I never forgot I was acting. That's how I was able to do it. I see. I never forgot I was acting. So my daughter likes to play. So she'll create these wonderful stories and imaginary people. And I'm interacting in that play with her. Okay? And one time I may say something that leads her to believe I think it's for real. And she stops and she says, Daddy, we're pretending. <laughs> so we need to know the difference between what is really so and what is not. And again, uh, using the term, what, what's your name? Howard. Using Howard's uh, you know, term, character flaws, are stuff we've learned or picked up along the way. You're saying? We need to know, I tell my students, you need to know the difference between the knowledge and wisdom you came into the world with and what you picked up along the way. And most of us identify with what? Which one of them? <coughs> yeah, most of us identify with what we picked up along the way. And that is part of the Buddha's definition in the Second Noble Truth, when he says suffering is a function of ignorance, part of that definition of the use of the term ignorance is we ignore our inherent wisdom for the stuff we picked up along the way. You see? I mean, how many times in your life have you ignored your inherent or gut feeling for what you were supposed to do? in the course of nine out of ten or ten straight you see so that's why I say to people meditation like the kind we practice and train in at the monastery is difficult for most people not because of the hours not because of the posture but because we don't trust ourselves we don't believe we have anything of value to spend that much time alone with us for we don't. Another example I often use, I'm going to call you next Friday night and invite you over. So I call you and I invite you over. And what's the first question you ask? What can I bring? What's the second question you ask? <laughs> what are we going to do? And I say to you, nothing. And you say to me, let me get back to you. I have to check my calendar. And when I hang up the phone, I know you're not going to call back. You see? So most of us are unable to commit to real meditation practice, which involves sitting with yourself and being honest with yourself, you know, giving yourself the space to show up 
in order that you can learn what you need to learn. Most of us won't do that because we don't trust ourselves. We don't believe we have learned. We have nothing of any real value to spend any time with ourselves over. That's why we need to fill the room with activity and other people. Did you have your hand raised? Somebody? Len, hi. In, in, in the Buddhist thought process, is, is there value in, let's say, going back to that original initial moment where you lose it and, and healing that process? That's, that's all uh, integral in the process. That's integrated into the process. Okay? So it's not as much as, it's not as necessary to know the exact date and circumstance. What's necessary is to understand what generated that. <laughs> the cause of that, okay? So in order that I can then see what my life has truly been about up until now, okay? What my life has been truly about up until now. Someone once said, a young boy becomes a police officer and a soldier because someone convinced him when he was young he was a coward. And everybody know that psychiatrists become psychiatrists to work out their stuff. Mm -hmm. saying. Even our choices in life are literally determined with whatever that identity convinced us about ourselves. You're saying. <laughs> Any other question? Okay. Any other questions? Hi, Denise. May I ask a question? Um, you know, for years now I've been hearing you talk about who I truly am. I think I could meditate forever. I would never be able to answer that question because... And that's good. You know why? Because who you truly are is incomparable. You have nothing to compare it to. That is why we talk about it that way in the opening of the Dharma. This Dharma, and what did the Buddha say? You are the Dharma. So when we say this Dharma, we mean Denise is incomparable, my, you know, profound, pervading the entire universe. There's nothing in the conceptual or cognitive process of mind that you can use to compare yourself to. That's why you can meditate on it. <coughs> so that's why in Zen, it's all experiential. You can experience it and know it, but the moment you open your mouth and say something about it, you've lost it. Go on. It seems to me that um, from what I've been hearing you say for a long time now, if we all stripped away the conditioning that we've had you know, since age four or six, whatever, we'd all be the same. We, we'd all be? The same. By, what do you mean by the same? Um, for example, my political views are probably diametrically opposed to yours. Well. And, somehow, <laughs> and I detach myself from that when uh -huh. I hear you insult Republicans as you did earlier. I totally, and, and my daughter, we detach ourselves from that. I detach myself from Republicans, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Except sometimes. I voted for Nixon and Reagan. <laughs> Why? He wasn't good for me. Um, <laughs> uh, 
is that I, that feels like an inherent part of me, my political views. Yeah. Um, the music I like feels like an inherent part of me. I don't know if it was conditioned in, or is that truly me? Yeah. I'm, I consider myself a quiet person compared to other people. Is yeah. that conditioned into me, or was I gregarious at one point and became conditioned to be more introverted? Well, we need to be careful. Well, this is why a teacher and a sangha is necessary because we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? Because at birth, what we are, <coughs> the Buddha said, and you can see this, the, uh, the evidence is in this conversation when he says, what we are are infinite fields of potentiality. Okay? That's why, and we continue to be that, even with our conditioning. That's why most people's understanding of karma is not what he taught. Most people's understanding of karma is something happens back here that I did or was involved in, and the rest of my life is you know, determined by that. But that's not what he taught. He said at any moment, because what we are are infinite fields of potential, we can change the, our future. We can turn that around at any moment, at any moment. <laughs> so at birth, it's kind of like when Katie was born, one of the things that I, I heard repeatedly in the conversations when I became member of the parents' club, repeatedly in those conversations was, you know, children are sponges. They're like sponges, okay? So, and that's the truth. What we are is space, okay? So in, in Buddhism, you know, when the Buddha is asked, to define it, he said, here it is. When you find what works for you, do it. Or he might say, when you find what works for you, keep that. When you find what doesn't work for you, don't do it or get rid of that. Okay? So, yeah, uh, it's, we need to be careful. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not about everything that we picked up along the, the way is not good for us. You know, so in, in faith-based traditions, the way they talk about what I'm talking about, they talk about discernment, learning how to discern what is of God and what is not, okay? So in Buddhism, the same discernment goes on, but we just don't use that language, you know? So we want right action, and by right we mean the stuff that frees us and others up. And we want to avoid wrong action, and by wrong we mean the stuff that imprisons and limits and restricts and doesn't allow for that free freedom. And whether we're talking Democrat or Republican, both of those definitions restrict. When we talk about Buddhist or Christian, both of those definitions restrict. So it doesn't really matter who's right or who's wrong. The, what matters is to recognize Wherever I, whatever follows I am is what decides it for us. You're saying? Whatever follows I am is what decides it for us. That's why we need to be careful when we say I am. Because whatever follows that is what decides it for us. And I'm going to say this only in this room, and if you tell other people I said this, I'm going <laughs> to deny it. There's nothing really wrong with Republicans any more than Democrats. <laughs> okay? Now, if you say I said that, I'm going to deny it. <laughs> so you know ahead of time. 
What matters is not what party you belong to. What matters is, is whether or not you live a life that is liberating both for yourself and others, that truly frees you and others up. That's what matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters to a four-year-old than to be free to be a four-year-old. Nothing else matters. Any other questions? Thanks, Denise. I don't have a question, but as we're having a conversation, I think most individuals, I, I don't know, I, I think it's simpler than that. I think it's getting up in the morning and being a good human being every single day of your life and being of service. And, and you've been saying it about compassion and non-judgment, being non-judgmental, and I don't know, I think it's just being a good human being every single day. Well, again, what, what is that? Being a decent individual to everyone that you encounter. But what is that? You can. You need, listen no. to the question. Don't answer the question. Listen to the question. What is that? If that isn't being who you are as a benefit for others. Because what compels us to be a decent human being, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be loving, to be kind, is our true nature. You know, Buddhism says that every being, every being from the Buddha to Hitler possesses Buddha nature, possesses that common denominator. We are all loving, kind, and compassionate. We're hardwired for that. Okay? So when you wake up tomorrow morning and be a decent human being, you're being who you truly are. Okay? And when you do that to help others, you're living on purpose rather than just going through life driven by desires to, you know, what did George Bernard Shaw say? Rather than being just a selfish little cloud of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world is not devoting itself to making you happy, you're saying? So we're saying the same thing. I'm saying, whenever we are moved to be loving and kind and compassionate toward ourselves and others, that's who we are. We are born with that. It's evidence. You know, uh, Len, my brother, my friend, brought my daughter into the world. He's the guy that did that. And we were just the other day talking about that day. And one of the things that I remember when Katie was born in that uh, in delivery room was, you know, as soon as they, they, you know, cleaned her up and everything, and I was watching it all, and I was leaning over, and she reached out and grabbed me. We are hardwired for that, to connect with others. We are hardwired for that. We c and so when, you know, when, when I carried her over and laid her on her mother's breast, she snuggled right in. She knew who this was. In fact, I always tell people about how she, every time, she was looking back at her the whole time, back and forth, you know. She knew where her mother was, and she knew who I was. And so we are hardwired. So when we are acting in relationship with others, when we are acting with compassion and loving kindness, that's the best and most ideal time we are being who we truly are. Somewhere along the line, this very precious, loving little girl will learn to hurt somebody, will learn to ignore herself. She certainly wasn't born that way. I haven't seen it. 
I didn't see it that day. And that's true about you and me. And that's what we're talking about here. That's the stuff we need to strip away. That's, the, that's what spirituality really is about. It's not about you know, gaining anything new. We are, we are born with everything we need. It's about stripping away everything that we've picked up along the way that has literally prevented us from being that, that prevents us from being that. And whenever I think I should or should not, that's not your true nature. You don't need to think about it. You know it. You know, it's, it's like the story I have told over and over again about the uh, Tibetan master who regularly uh, gave retreats to young college people from the West. And I was there for one of them to visit him. And he allowed me to sit up on the stage. And there was this one night where there's this long line. It just goes down the hill and everything. And everybody got an opportunity to come in and see him. And whenever a Western college person or adult, anyone from the West, came to see him and asked their question, they got one question to ask, he would consistently and regularly ring the bell, which meant time to go, and go, <coughs> Ugh! and they knew they had to go, and someone came over and ushered them out. And later on, when I asked him what that was all about, long story short, he said, you already know the answer. You just don't like it. Saying. We already know what's necessary. We already know what to do. We're just afraid to do it. You see? And the only way we overcome that is to practice Nike Buddhism. Just do it. <laughs> That's the only way we overcome it. Say what you mean, mean what you say. And everything else is a lie anyway. I just made that up. <laughs> that rhymes, Daddy. <laughs> say what you mean, mean what you say, and everything else is a lie anyway. The story is always incomplete. So when you are moved to love, love. You know, when someone was asked in ancient times... You know, the Zen master, what is Zen? He said, when we hear something, we listen. When we smell something, we smell it. When we taste something, we taste it. When we see something, we look. That's Zen. Now, what did that mean? It meant that we don't add any story to that. So it's, you know, another wonderful story has to do with the young man who has this enlightening moment during a long period of meditation called Sashin. And he's walking with his master out into the forest, and he's going on and on and on about how wonderful the world is and how the universe is complete and everything is harmonious. And he's trying to petition a response from his teacher, and he doesn't answer him. The, this wonderful, enlightening moment disappears for the kid, and he gets very frustrated that the master is not answering him. And he yells at the master, Master, what do you think about all of this? And he says... I agree, but it's a shame you have to say so. What's that about for you? Why do we have to call it good or bad? Why do we have to call it right or wrong? We know what it is. In one of my favorite movies uh, called One Day with uh, a really beautiful 
actress. <laughs> I always get a name. I never remember a name. Nonetheless, it's, it's a love story, and at the end of the story, the, the, the mother is killed in a tragic accident, so the father's with, his, with the only child that they had between each other. And, she, and he asks her, the closing scene is where he asks the daughter, so what do you think of your dad? And throughout his life, he really he was a drunkard and everything else. And she said, I'm not going to answer that. You know what you are. By then he had made, he had cleaned his act up. You know. So why do we have to call it anything? That's the meaning of that lesson. I will take a few minutes to break and come back and complete the night. Thank you. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. I have a young friend who speaks of the time when he reads stories with his daughter as a time that needs no confirmation. There is wisdom in his phrase, a time that needs no confirmation. We all need to touch down with the source of life again and again in order to brighten enough to continue. <coughs> Whether we make our way in by praying or listening to music, by meditating, by painting, or loving, or reading <coughs> entries to <coughs> reading stories to our children, or to our friends' children, or to ourselves. When we close our minds like tired eyes and surrender our hearts like mouths thirsted open, we come upon a common source where nothing need be approved or accepted where no rejection or criticism need be overcome. The experience itself is all the authority we need. Interestingly, these renewing moments open precisely when we forget about ourselves. Like horses with blinders, we can quite shake, we sniff out our way until we come upon these deep pools to drink from. And for the moment, we are saved. In truth, we drink from this great paradox daily. Though everyone alive shares this moment, we are living right now. No one experiences this moment more directly than you. No one can say what it feels like for you to be alive but you. No one needs permission to be alive, to stay alive, to know the joy of touching your unrepeatable hand to the earth. So, this relearning in of itself is a process. Spirituality is a process we embark on on the moment we awaken to the fact that we live lives of actors and imposters. We awaken to the fact that most of our life in the course of any given day is spent meeting these <coughs> expectations we did not bring with us, but rather picked up along the way. One of the most famous sutras in Buddhism is called the Metta Sutra. And this word Metta means loving kindness. So when the Buddha was asked the process or the procedure or the solution to turning this all around, he wrote the Metta Sutra. 
The Metta Sutra is the practice of loving kindness. And again, in Buddhism, loving kindness to oneself and to others. You cannot do it independently of one or the other. I can only give you what I have. Therefore, compassion begins with compassion towards myself. And so in training, we, we bring about this space through meditation by which we allow our life to show up in that space so that we can learn from it. In the mere activity of allowing it to show up in that space during meditation, <coughs> this is what Buddhists mean when they use the word loving-kindness. So if you want a path, this is how he wrote it. <coughs> this is what should be done by one who is skilled in being a good and decent person and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech and action, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing only in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, Republicans and Denoidas in it. May all beings be in Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Just as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless, limitless heart should one cherish their life and the lives of all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to any fixed views of perfect or non-perfect, right or wrong, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So that is the Metta Sutra, to which the Buddha wrote in response to the lay person when they asked for a particular path or code, the code of happiness, if you will, which I'll be talking more about in a series of talks that will begin at the end of February here at Yoga for Living 
called Being Happy. And you can learn more about that in the sheets that have been given out to you. But for now, the course of one's day is one zendo. That is to say, your life, whether you come to Pine Wind or not, is your zendo. That is where you need to practice. Whether you are at Pine Wind or not, you practice in your zendo. Your zendo is your life as it is. <coughs> as it is. So you don't need to go looking for the lesson. The lesson is always presenting itself at every moment. You need only to remember the purpose of the lesson. All lessons. The lesson that is um, not so difficult and the lesson that is most difficult has the same purpose. All lessons lead to one objective. And that objective is to liberate us, to free us up, to be a benefit to others. You were born at the time and the moment of your birth exactly when you were supposed to be born. Why? Because you were what was needed to continue the evolution of humanity. In the same way that Darwin speaks in the theory of evolution that nature creates what is necessary for the further evolution of the forest, you participate in that same theory, in that same evolutionary process. So when you were born, you brought what was necessary for the forest to continue to evolve. This is why when people ask me why I think there is so much suffering in the world, and my answer is always the same. We are all living lives we would prefer not to live and in living the lives we prefer not to live, we have failed to bring what we brought with us for the further evolution of humanity. So you, you are the missing link. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, you wake up, first of all, with a sense of gratitude. The process begins with Gratitude. The Japanese say you can meditate at the foot of Mount Fuji until the earth beneath you crumbles. Without gratitude, nothing is achieved. Nothing is accomplished. So tomorrow morning we wake up because, as I said earlier, I will say goodbye to you tonight and I will say maybe I'll see you next time because we don't know. So for me, my first thought in my first awareness of the daylight and being awake is thank you. And from there, I choose the rest of the day. From there, I choose the rest of the day. The Buddha talks about, again, living one's life in the same way a mother lives her life for her only child. A mother's willingness and readiness, and a father also. I can never understand why they just mention mothers. <laughs> Talk about sexism, if you will. <clears throat> also, lives their life for the sake of their child. We live our life for the sake of others. We, you know, I tell people you will never know your fullest potential if you don't use what you got. And if you don't use it as a benefit for others. So again, if you believe me, and you should, that you were born at the, a specific hour and specific moment to bring to the world what was necessary for the further evolution of humanity, and that your purpose for being born is not the stuff that our cultural conditioning has uh, can regularly 
teaches us, but is the stuff of, you know, spiritual beings having a human experience. If you believe that, then you live your life as a decent human being, allowing everyone the right to have everything you would like to have. You know, when, again, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. You love others in the way you want to be loved. You treat others in the way you want to be treated. You speak in the way you would hope others will speak to you, and you interact in the way you hope others will interact with you. That's how simple it is. And yet it seems to be the most complicated practice for human beings. When you come to the monastery and you enter into either membership or training in a Zen monastery, you have come to learn how to do that skillfully and tempered with wisdom or tempered by wisdom. Wisdom is that inherent knowledge we come to ignore in our lifetime within <clears throat> us. A knowledge and an awareness that can only be reawakened. So that's why in Buddhism we use such terms as awaken to your true nature. We use such terms as realizing, realizing your Buddha nature. It's not about becoming a Buddha. It's not about becoming an enlightened being. It's about awakening to your already Buddha nature and your already enlightenment. You are already enlightened. Act accordingly. You are Buddhas. Act accordingly. And so just as a Buddha would consider teachings of others, a Buddha's final decision is always based on what is inherently true to themselves. So that is why one of the, one of the uh, things that attracted me to Buddhism as a young Catholic boy was every time the Buddha would teach, his last words to his audience would be this. If you like what I said and it works for you, keep it. If you don't, forget about it. You know, forget about it. Take the stuff that works and leave the rest. And what he was saying is that, you know, to thine own self be true. Trust yourself. Live from that place you know you want to live from. What we all want more than anything else in life, including Zen masters, is to love and to be loved. We want that more than anything else in life. Why don't we just learn how to live our lives accordingly? Because in order to realize your Buddha nature, and that's why you come to a Zen monastery and you train in the way you do, you need to live as a Buddha. If you want to know God, you need to live godly. If you want to know your Buddha nature, you need to live as a Buddha. When you are living the opposite, that's the stuff that makes us feel amiss, that something is amiss. That's the stuff that makes us feel separated from each other. That's the stuff that makes us endlessly search for what we already have, for what we already have. So detach, not reject, because rejection means you still believe it. Detach from all ideals of perfection and imperfection. Risk, because risk is what generates life. There's never been any life form born into the world without that, without the risk. It's risky business to be born, if you will. Risk being who you truly are, and then you will awaken to who that is.
But as long as you live your life always trying to protect that egocentric <coughs> idea of who you truly are, that person, as I said to James earlier, the person that you're afraid, you know, the person that's afraid of disappointing others is the person you're not. And that person will dominate your life's experience. And in dominating your life's experience, will never permit you to know your infinite potential that has no boundaries or limitations except the ones you put on them and allow others to put on for you. Any questions? So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> oh yes, this coming Monday night there, uh, I will be celebrating a liturgy for the ending of injustice and discrimination of all forms commemorating Martin Luther King, which is Monday evening. You're welcome to join me, come to the monastery, and participate in that liturgy for peace and justice and the end of discrimination. Wednesday night, are you guys teaching this Wednesday, or is that it? That's it for this month, Russian. The first, second, and third Wednesday night, uh, Emyo and Daiko teach a wonderful class on Buddhism, so if you want to know more about Buddhism and what that's really all about, go talk to them, don't talk to me. <laughs> That's what they do. They tell you about Buddhism. <laughs> and become a member. Join the Zen Society. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your affiliation is. You already belong there. So why don't you just get with it. Wake up to it and become a member of our community. It's a nice bunch of people, except sometimes. <laughs> well, here we are again. Sound and fury, signifying whatever you wanted to. So as I always say, the validity of our work tonight is what you do with it when you leave. I just filled you in on some stuff, and thank you for the privilege of allowing me to do so. You know, every time you come here and you listen to me, you let me be me, and I am eternally <coughs> grateful for that. <laughs> All right, you can go now. <laughs> <laughs>